questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. How did the Titanic, with double layer of one inch thick steel plate on her bottom, 15 watertight doors, and 73 additional watertight compartments receive enough damage from a mild collision to cause her to sink in just two hours and 40 minutes? Why was the public never shown the frames of Hindenburg's initial fire, even though there were 22 professional photographers at the event to film her docking? If Titanic's hull was damaged so catastrophically, why were none of the survivors who testified able to describe any kind of impact? Even though there was no evidence, why was a static spark theory selected as Hindenburg's nemesis when it had never occurred in nine years of scheduled flights? Finally, the latest evidence from the bottom of the Atlantic allows the truth about the Titanic and Hindenburg tragedies to be told. Was the Titanic quote-unquote accident a premeditated event? Was it deliberately sunk? If so, how and why? Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, at VeritasRadio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Kenneth Price Jr., a semi-retired freelance engineer, writer, and musician currently residing in Washington State. A brief history includes his graduating as a mechanical engineer from the University of California in 1976. Kenneth then spent 14 years working for a major oil company. And we have a very extensive bio right on our website. Kenneth is the author of Titanic and Hindenburg, Two Tragedies, One Plan. And he joins us directly from Ocean Park, Washington. Hello, Kenneth, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Yes, hello. I'm very well. And how about yourself? I'm doing great, especially having you on because I just finished reading the first part of your book. Your book is over 300 pages long, so about 120 pages, and I have over 26 pages of notes here. So I decided not to read the other two parts. Perhaps we can leave that for a future interview, but may I call you Ken, by the way? Yes, please do. Ken, this is one of those non-traditional interviews that we conduct. It was one of our listeners, David, who referred me to you. He sent me a portion of your book, and I was fascinated. What you're about to tell us tonight is going to open a lot of eyes, a lot of minds, a lot of ears. But aside from what I read about you, can you tell us a little bit of a background of how you got to discuss and research the Titanic and Hindenburg? Well, I guess I'd have to say, first of all, that I I love sailing. I love boats. I lived on a sailboat. Um, So the Titanic has always been a very interesting subject to me. In uh, 1985, I was particularly struck by the fact that they had, had finally found the hull. And when they found the hull, it was in two pieces. And since that day, I've, uh, it's been kind of my, my life's work is to find out why that hull is in two pieces. <clears throat> Actually, it's a lot more pieces than that. But uh, two is enough. You know, that's a major problem with a steel boat. Now, when we think uh, of the Titanic, the first thing that we think is it hit an iceberg. That was the very first thing that we were told. Everybody believes that story. That's it. Period. The investigation, that's what it said. But you found that this is actually very improbable. Why do you say that? 
Well, it's very improbable because it was a steel ship, and the thinnest metal on that ship was half-inch plate steel. This is rolled, hot rolled steel um, by very close standards by the British Board of Trade. It um, had nine decks, and those were a half-inch thick as well. And then it had a um, a bilge hull that was virtually indestructible. That had two layers of one-inch thick steel that was separated by five-foot frames between the two layers. So it had kind of a hollow you know, uh, bottom that was five feet of hollow space underneath the, let's say, the engine deck where the engine laid. <clears throat> um, now, when they show this ship coming apart in two pieces, and I might add that all of what I'm saying is, if, if you have any questions about what I'm saying, is take a look at all of the YouTubes and videos that have been made recently by National Geographic and the History Channel. There's also one there by um, Cameron, the movie maker, that's yeah. about only two minutes and something seconds. And you can watch how they're telling us this ship uh, just literally snaps itself in half. And now this is steel, and steel does not snap. And I might add that, that when these Irishmen put this ship together, they don't just butt the steel up to the seal so they can just rip it apart. It's overlapped a minimum of a foot. And there's two, two rows of rivets down the side. So it does not come apart. In fact, they've, uh, they've even tested this in, in tests with actual pieces of the material that they got off of what they call the big piece, which is residing at the Lecture Hotel in uh, Las Vegas right now. And they've actually put these in stress machines and, and pulled on them. And you, you can watch one of them in uh, one of the YouTubes by National Geographic. And those rivets do not let go. <laughs> so the idea of this ship, while it is tilting and then breaking itself in half, is completely um, <laughs> just, you know, there's, I'll, I'll go to my grave before I'll ever, ever fall for that story. But we shouldn't expect, uh, Ken, to have our listeners believe anything that comes from Cameron's movie, uh, of course, that was a, a, you know mixed with fiction, but especially History Channel and National Geographic. Right, right. Well, and that that brings up another, you know, part of this whole story is all of these scientists that are involved with with finding this wreckage and documenting the wreckage. They are looking at a debris field that is five miles long and three miles wide and trying to explain how these pieces of iron that were riveted down, you know, one rivet would have held, held this, these parts to the ship, but they're asking us to believe that uh, they just came apart like a, uh, a piece of soggy driftwood or something would. And how, how would you get this, the pieces of this ship in such a large area on the bottom of the ocean? Well, so they admit, and it, they, they say this in the official report, which is done by, an, uh, it's called the New York College of, the New York City College Marine Forensics Division. They're the official authority. They work with the Woods Hole Institute, uh, with the Ballard group that found the hole. And the official explanation 
was put together in 2012, and I have that at the website. You can go look at the official drawing, and they call it the low-angle brake theory. By the way, this is totally different than what Cameron depicted in the Titanic movie in 1997. That's the high-angle brake theory. So I want you all to know that the high-angle brake theory has been dismissed by the Woods Hole Institute. Uh, And that happened in 2005 when they found some additional pieces out of the very bottom of the bilge. So where was I? Um, They've got this ship somehow spread itself out over three by five miles. The New York College of Marine Forensics admits the only way this could happen is that it came apart at the surface. Now, this, this is getting really hard to take because the original story of the Titanic is really hard to take. It's really hard to take because the ship had 16 watertight compartments, and to sink that ship was virtually impossible. Somehow they had to puncture five of the 16 compartments, or it would not have gone low enough in the water to sink. So that means they've got to damage the first five compartments, which is a length of about almost 300 feet of the side of the ship that they've got to put a damage uh, hole through to fill up five compartments. You can understand why I'm saying this is really hard to believe. Uh, One thing has has been kind of forgotten is that we're talking about two totally different materials here. One is ice. The other is steel. Ice is like a rock material. It's it's more like a mineral. Well, I shouldn't say mineral. It's it's more like a, a crystal more like a rock, whereas as steel, well, I shouldn't have used the word crystal either. Well, steel is ductile and it's strong in every dire- direction, whereas ice is only strong in compression and it's very weak in every direction. It can absorb blows by crushing. It can, um, you know, it can be shaved off. You can't do these things to steel. Where the, the notion is that the, ice somehow cut steel is is erroneous so i've been i've been you know going over this issue for quite some time trying to figure out well, what's the latest story on that i mean nobody's ever cut steel with ice uh, i haven't found one example well the same so thing they, the same thing i don't mean to interrupt you but the same thing could be said about an aluminum framed airliner you know perhaps the titanium engines cutting through steel like a knife through hot butter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> very, yeah, that's very apropos for this case, isn't it? Yeah, it's another one of those mysteries. So here we are with the, um, let's see, this, how did the ice cut the steel? And, the, well, so then they started saying, well, it's just, it dented it in. It dented it in. Um, okay. Now, if you go and read the, uh, the hearings that were put together in 1994 by um, Tom Coons. It's called the Titanic Disaster Hearings, and that is where you can people could solve the case of what really happened to the Titanic. It's by going over those hearings because you can see that it was kind of like a uh, Warren Commission, if I might say. Uh, yeah. A very, very much a staged affair. It doesn't take you long reading the the, the book on the uh, the hearings that the questions were just so outlandish and staged and they accepted the iceberg theory right up front but um so they accepted the fact that this ship was damaged at the on the starboard at the bow and then it gradually filled up these compartments 
and I and actually I used the wrong word. I said gradually. Okay, they only had 160 minutes to sink this ship, according to the story. That means in 40 minutes, it's got to be one fourth of the way full of water. And in order for that to happen, you'd have to have a 20 square foot hole. But now you need all of these compartments to fill up at roughly the same rate. You know, you can't have one compartment with a big, huge hole in it and one with a pinhole in it because that one compartment's going to hold up the process. You're not going to get the ship sunk in 160 minutes. Are you with me? I'm with you. Well, let's, <clears throat> let's dissect this even more. You know, the iceberg okay. story, of course, that, that's and it's fully endorsed, not just by people, but by historians and, and scientists alike. But I'm curious, how did you make a connection between the Titanic and the Hindenburg? The Titanic sunk in 1912 and the Hindenburg crashed in 1937 in New Jersey. How did you make that connection? Great question. The answer is fuel consumption. Okay, I let that just pause for a second. But if you want to look at the Titanic and these steamships that ran on coal, you've got the most efficient way of moving people that they ever came up with. For example, a ton of coal. Well, the Titanic took 600 tons of coal per day to run, to operate, to push that ship through the water and make steam heat and baths and everything else for the uh, people aboard. 600 tons a day, five days to cross, 3,000 tons, carried about 3,000 passengers. It took a ton of coal to move a passenger across the ocean with the Titanic. Okay, a ton of coal uh, sounds like a lot, but it was only $1. Now, what you've got today is you've got, let's say, the Queen Elizabeth, which is about the last liner operating. <clears throat> it's running on bunker fuel at $500 a a ton, which is 266 gallons, which comes out to be over $2 a gallon, whereas the Titanic was running on comparable fuel at a half a penny a gallon. So uh, even though they've modernized these ships of today, like, for example, the, the, the QE2 is all very modern uh, diesel-powered. It's got nine uh, BMW diesels that are uh, they, they are only attached to generators. There's just no mechanical losses in gearing. And then they have electric motors driving the two screws. So it's a, it's a very efficient system, but yet it's, it's diesels. And they're running on diesel fuel, which has to uh, – I'm sorry. They're running on bunker fuel and charging $500 or, uh, you know, it costs over $100,000 a day to push that ship. Okay, so, so even though – it looks like we've got engines today that are more efficient. The fact of the matter is we've been taken to the cleaners by a factor of about 20 to one because they may took away coal. Now, when we look at the Hindenburg, Hindenburg had a very effective form of anti-gravity. And so with the Hindenburg, even though it weighed half a million pounds, it, in order to get that, weight into the air, all you had to do is release a mooring line and it would rise on its own. You know, what you've got now are very, very heavy planes full of fuel sitting on the runway, they race their engines up to full power, they go screaming down the runway and they're really strained to get off the ground. With this type of technology, you just merely unhooked the mooring line and then when the craft rose to about 500 feet, you 
started your engines and all the engines had to do was push it forward. What were you pushing? A long cigar-shaped tube. And what, what was the Hindenburg using for fuel? Diesel fuel. It had diesel engines as opposed to every other aircraft out there running on high-octane aviation fuel. To, to push it um, forward. But the actual, right. if you want to call it a balloon, it was full of helium or eventually hydrogen after the embargo. Well, the Germans always used hydrogen. <clears throat> and I might add, there, there's a good reason for that. There's only so much helium on this planet. But, but also, the only way you can get an airship to descend is you've got to let some of your, your gas right. out. And so when you get down on the ground, you're going to have to put some more gas back in. So helium, with, with it being as scarce as it is to actually use as a airship fuel where for all countries to use helium, I, I, I don't think there's anywhere near enough. Hydrogen is very easy to make. You can make it with solar power, um, you know, it, it, so that you can make it very cheaply that way. And then you can also use it as fuel. So that when you're descending, you need to let your hydrogen gas go. You run that through your engine and you burn that on the on your descent downward. Yeah, but when, when your the, diesel when your diesel tanks start getting depleted because you're using them, of course it's going to go higher. So that's when you let the hydrogen go out, right? That's that's very good. That's exactly right. They uh, the the Hindenburg. Well, any any dirigible that used helium would. Because they they try and hold on to their helium as much as possible, they would trap the exhaust gas, so they'd collect all of the condensate from the engines. Because the combustion engine is basically turning it into CO2 plus plus H2O in the reaction, so they catch all that water to to keep the ship heavy, so that they can come back down easier. I see. You know, not have not have to vent off so much hydrogen. I mean, helium. They're using helium. But the, the Hindenburg didn't care. Hydrogen's cheap. They can make all they want. They just fan it off and then fill it back up when they got on the ground. And then that, their plan was to also use it as fuel. There was going to be a, a fifth engine on the lower part of the stern, but they didn't let them put that engine on. So that would have made it even more efficient. Now, who but and the, why didn't they allow the, the, the use of a hydrogen engine? Well... There, there were a few hydrogen engines. There was a hydrogen engine that went over the North Pole with the, the uh, blimp that the uh, Italian explorer used. 1928, but, wasn't it? Uh, that, that might be about right. I can't remember. 1926, yeah, can't actually. Um, and he, um, <clears throat> he used hydrogen, but the oil industry is, is scared to death of hydrogen. I can tell you that right now. They do not want us using hydrogen as a fuel. It's the obvious choice for a fuel. I mean, come on. When you when you burn hydrogen, it turns into water. You know, that's a combustion reaction. You know, hydrogen plus oxygen goes boom and produces H2O plus heat. And so you've got a perfectly uh, non-toxic reaction. It will never produce any kind of pollution. And you've always got a source of hydrogen. It's in the water. Well, of course, they tell us that well, we can't get the hydrogen out of the water without actually putting more work in to get the hydrogen out of the water than the amount of energy we'll get out burning the hydrogen in the air. Yep, that's and what we're told. That's what every scientist will tell you, and it's just flat out not true. You've got uh, people out there that have uh, the scientists, et cetera, that have developed ways to have that uh, water molecule split apart very readily. They use 
just the right vibration, radio waves, um, and the right frequency. And it is there is a way to break that water apart readily. So Stanley Meyer proved it with his water-powered car. Yeah. And there's there's a number you can see a number of people on YouTube that have devices that do this, but they uh, they attempt to hold on to their little little secret, or it, they get disappeared. But that's an obvious an obvious fuel uh, we should be using. Well, it's like coal, for example. You take coal out of the ground. You don't have to take it somewhere else to be processed. You just use it. You burn it, and that's it. But with oil, right. you have to get the petroleum, you have to then process it, take it somewhere else. So this idea right. that uh, it's cheaper than than hydrogen and, and safer, that's a fallacy. But, you know, does this thinking, sinking of the Indeed. Titanic have anything to do with the dawn of aviation travel? Oh, it has, it has everything to do with the dawn of aviation travel. I, uh, I'm really glad you asked that question. I have... That is one of my comments right up front is that don't ever forget that when the Titanic went down, that was when the aviation industry was born. That's right. Uh, it's April 16th. And see, the Titanic went down on April 14th, 15th. And then on April 16th, Harriet Quimby became the first woman to fly the English Channel. And April 22nd, Denny Wilson flies over the Irish Sea. And then June 19th, the Royal Flying Corps of Central Flying School op opened in Wiltshire, uh, England. And, you know, just let's see, we had our first commercial flight in the United States in 1914, January 1st. So this was all, yes, part of a, a wish, a plan that came true, and that was to convert our efficient uh, transportation mechanisms into ones that would consume much higher quantities of fuel. And that's what we've got today. If uh, you look at the modern airline industry, they have succeeded. You say, this, you say this from your book, if I might quote this, quote, we have been taught to look at our transportation mechanisms from one single viewpoint. Everything runs on petroleum. But since discovering research from as early as 1850, that revealed engineers had already discovered a better fuel than better fuel than gasoline. I found myself able to analyze our current transportation mechanisms from a human capability perspective. From that perspective, it is easy to see what really transpired. Unquote. What exactly do you mean? Um, <clears throat> what I mean is, if you take oil out of the equation, if you would have left the the, the situation open the way it was, for example, in 1850. They weren't even messing around with gasoline. It was such a poor fuel. They were they were using things like like a methanol, which is a high kind of a high octane alcohol, one carbon alcohol. They were using hydrogen peroxide. They were using um, oh I forget the other one. It's made from nitrogen, but they were basically using fuels that had much higher uh, psi of combustion, and they were experimenting with these fuels in torpedoes and torpedoes were a big item on the world market where they were trying to, you had uh, foreign countries that were in need of a way to defend their harbors. And so that torpedoes could be mounted on a barge and they could be placed near the entrance of a harbor. And so they could blast a battleship if it came in your harbor and started shelling your city. 
So torpedoes were, were in big demand all over the world. Now, this was an industry that we never never got to see until World War II when we started to finally see the, the torpedoes. Um, I didn't really see my first torpedo until about 1990. I finally saw a cutaway of a torpedo, and I about fell, fell um, all over myself with the technology in that torpedo. That was like a revelation. But <clears throat> so we were talking about that everything runs on petroleum. That's kind of they, they took away from us. The first big thing they took away from us was alcohol. Alcohol is a superior fuel. They used it at Indy for the reason that it wouldn't erupt and drivers wouldn't be burned. So they started using it in the 50s after there was a really horrendous car crash that burned up a couple of drivers. Are you talking about uh, as a fuel source or prohibition? Fuel in the, in the, in the, in the vehicle. Methanol is an alcohol that's not for drinking. There's three types of alcohol. There's, well, actually there's more than that, but the, the alcohol that we drink is called ethanol and that's a two carbon alcohol. Methanol is a one carbon alcohol. It's lighter. It's a little more oxygenated, burns quicker. It, it's not nearly as volatile as gasoline. It's not toxic. If you dump it on the ground, it will basically cause no problem. It, uh, it, you could drive the car in your house and leave it running. Literally, it would not uh, kill you until it took all, all the oxygen out of the room, but it would not pr produce carbon monoxide running on alcohol because it's an oxygenated fuel. But isn't and, it very expensive? For example, in no, the United States, it's via corn. In Brazil, for example, it's sugarcane, which is more efficient. This is where I get really frustrated with the media because they don't tell the story right. They're always trying to get us to use ethanol, which is drinking alcohol, yeah. which, which cuts into our food supply. Methanol could be made from any petroleum product. It currently is made from uh, methane gas. Now, any place that you drive by an oil uh, field and you see them flaring off this gas, which they're allowed to do with no catalytic crack, cracking unit or anything like that, they're allowed to just flare it right off. And that's, that's mostly methanol. Okay. They can make, they can turn that into, I'm sorry, that's methane. They can turn that into methanol. And uh, the, it's, a process known as reforming. Basically, you put it under pressure and temperature, and you condense it into a liquid. Okay, and you can make methanol out of methane. You can also make methanol out of gasoline by breaking the the molecules into single molecules and then adding an OH on one end and an H on the other. Well, how do you get an H and an OH? That's the formula for water, H2O. You need two H's, one O. And so when you combine water with um, like gasoline or any petroleum, break the chains down under pressure and with a catalyst, it will produce methanol from gasoline. And this is, a, this is something they don't want us to know. We're not supposed to know this. We're only supposed to <clears throat> know certain reactions that they can do at the refinery. Like we know they can crack heavy stock into gasoline because gasoline is such a big seller. And we know they have the reformer. If they need more diesel, they can reform gasoline 
up to, to a heavier viscosity like diesel. But they can also, with a higher temperature, see, this is something they don't teach us in college, is that water, water becomes unstable at around 500 degrees centigrade. It becomes unstable, and it starts doing things that it wouldn't normally do. And so you can get it to come apart and combine with the hydrocarbons and produce methanol, which is CH3OH. And see, it's got all of the same atoms as water and methane gas. That's all, that's all there is. So anyway, in the process of breaking gasoline into methanol, I'm sorry, yeah, meth, methanol, you get a higher yield than what you started with, and the yield is 4.5 to 1. So if you started with one gallon of gasoline, you're going to end up with four and a half gallons of methanol. I'm, try, I'm going to try to steer the interview a little bit away from okay. too much technicalities just because a lot of people may just – they might not really understand this and they will go over their heads. But I want to really focus on the why it happened. For example, 9-11, it had a profound effect on the public, not on the United States – in the United States only, around the world. What effects did both disasters have on the public? Okay. Well, with the Titanic, it created this huge psychological unjust half-truth. And that is that our technology was flawed, that we didn't know how to build ships well enough to cross the Atlantic without the possibility of hitting something and sinking. So people were of the feeling that, boy, this is it's scary to travel. And the, the Irishmen who built that ship, They've been under the false notion that, that somehow their ship came apart or they didn't build it right. And they need they need to have truth and closure in that because they built a great ship and that ship would have never come apart. Um, so that one of, one of the reasons was to kind of scare us, numb us a bit, so that we would be more inclined to accept air travel. Now, I might add, we're also getting ready to go into World War One, So that has something to do with it too you know it's like this this horrible loss of life we sort of get used to, we we get this chilling feeling like oh you know because it's death has occurred but you know it, it sort of gets us accustomed to it almost um sort of like gives us the idea that maybe war is on the wind or something and what else did they do with the titanic it was the most efficient ship because it had a combination of pistons and a steam turbine. Uh, and the piston engines were, were three-stage, so they were very efficient, the most efficient of their day. And then that exhaust steam went into the steam turbine. So the Titanic was, was the most efficient ship that was out there on the ocean. Now, part of that is because of its huge size, and we can get into that. But the larger a ship is, it, it inherently makes it a little more efficient. And a lot of because people don't know that it had two sister ships, the Olympic right. and the Britannic. Whatever happened to those two ships? And they were identical, weren't they? They were they were identical. Yes, they were built in the in the same yard. They 
uh, were actually the only ships that were ever built in that yard where the Titanic, the Olympic, and the Britannic were built. What happened to the Olympic? Um, it was the first one built. And it got into a um, collision. And so there's the, a theory that the Olympic was switched with the Titanic. And I, I, I don't really want to. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because to me it really doesn't make that much difference. The Titanic, that that ship became the ship that they were going to uh, make us think that we weren't safe on the seas. And the Britannic, they converted that into a hospital ship, and that ship got sunk over to Greece before the war was over, before World War One was over. It got sunk, and it's lying on the bottom in 400 feet. They have they have dived that hole. It's in one piece. Uh, it hit a mine or it was torpedoed. It's hard to know exactly what. For some reason, it sank very fast. And for some reason, the watertight doors were not deployed downward. So that's that's been confirmed by divers. The watertight doors were never put down. So, uh, you know, a hospital ship, why they didn't put the watertight doors down to try and save that thing from sinking, I don't know. I, I do know that of all of these steamships that I have researched and watched on various documentaries, they're, they're all a target. They they lead a very short life. If I had uh, maybe on our next time, we can go over how, how short of a life so many of these steamships had. They were they were just marvelously constructed. I mean, everything inside of that ship was hardwood or uh, you know, a rare material from the Far East. Well, and, one of the things I've heard and, of the people who were diving, you know, to see the Titanic, one of the things that they said was, it's incredible that not a single piece of plastic, just because plastics were invented back then. Yeah. These things were such treasures. And like for the Britannic, it was in service for less than a year. And they said, okay, we're going to turn this into a hospital ship. So do you know what that means? <laughs> it means your ship's going to basically be gutted. The, a lot of the other um, uh, passenger ship liners were turned into troop ships. And they even mounted deck guns on these things. And then they brought ordnance aboard so they could defend themselves. And so that's why I say, you're, you know, you're such a target. I mean, here you are. You're a beautiful liner. You're crossing the ocean with with soldiers on it and with ordnance and deck guns on it, you know, you're just asking to be blasted by the enemy, aren't you? So, of course, it becomes very, very disposable the moment they realize <clears throat> that it becomes a threat to the oil industry. But, you know, I'm going to be asking questions left and right just because I want to devote a lot of uh, time into to these two events and also linking them to more recent events. We've had tin cans flying for over 100 years, Ken, you know that. Aside from, from better performing engines and, and some technology, the concept is still the same. The engines may be slightly more fuel efficient, but the fuel cost itself is much higher. So we think we have a transportation system that is modern and, and high-tech, but is it? And are there alternatives that you're aware of that we're not? Oh, yeah. Well, that was actually the subject of my first book, The Rise and Stall of the Piston Engine. Um, and that is just a wonderful collection of automobiles from <clears throat> the Model T on up. And the Model T was probably one of the best automobiles we ever got. I don't think we ever got anything better since then. Have we progressed? We're still using piston engines, um, the turbocharged. But, you know, 
The fact of the matter is the turbocharger is much more efficient than the piston engine. It makes the piston engine more efficient, but it also demonstrates that the piston engine maybe should just be done away with, and we should just simply use rotary engines. So we've got the, the Wankel engine that supposedly can't outperform a piston engine, even though it has no pistons and hardly any friction, but yet somehow that little engine uses as much gas as a, you know, a, a V8. I, it's, so I, I know that's a, a tuning, a little trick of tuning there. That engine could turn the RPM up much higher. They could run that into like an electro kind of drive and have, have an electric from there rather than get rid of all these gears. <clears throat> Anytime you see shafts that are spinning, gears, clutches, um, transmissions, and limited slip differentials, limited slip clutches and transmissions, you're looking at very old technology. You're looking at technology that's designed totally to keep your fuel consumption up so that there's always a drag on your engine when you're sitting in traffic you can leave it in gear, but there's drag, so your engine's got to be uh, idling at slightly higher speed to overcome that drag. And we don't realize it, but our cars are getting five miles per gallon when we're in traffic. And so have we progressed? No, actually, we're, we're worse off because we've got more traffic now than we've ever had. And the, the solution that they're coming up with is a self-drive car. And that's... I, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> if that's what they're going to give us, I, I'm going to go completely crazy. I, I might just say, okay, that's it. I'm not, I don't even want to go out on the highway again. I'm just going to go live in a cave somewhere. So what you're, the most what you're saying is that, you know, when cars came out, you know, for many people, the average person's standard of living would be higher, allegedly. But in fact, what they did was they put everybody in bondage to the oil industry. That's exactly what they did. And that's, that's kind of, they did that with gasoline engine. The gasoline engine is a low compression engine that's very finicky. It, it won't run on diesel. It won't run on, well, you could run it on aviation fuel. But <clears throat> you, we can't make the fuel. That, that's the main thing. It, it really, it takes an oil refinery to make gasoline um, now, we could, could, of course, make ethanol alcohol with, with a still, and that's what they were doing in the 20s, and that's why prohibition came about. So I, I asked you that earlier, but you didn't have alcohol market. I wanted to ask you, prohibition, was it due to people's consuming consumption of alcohol, or was it also due to the oil industry getting their claws around it? Well, that's a great question. It had nothing to do with our drinking habits. It had nothing to do with trying to reform us and make us better uh, Christians or something like that. It had everything to do with putting out of business all of these distillers that were competing with the oil industry for fuel. Because alcohol was actually selling slightly less than gasoline. And you had in those days, you had almost every farm had a still because they, they had so much material, so much waste, uh, organic matter they could, they could uh, make alcohol out of, you know, you can ferment just about anything. Uh, one of one of the big uh, supporters of alcohol was, was always Henry Ford. In fact, his 1908 version was set up to run alcohol. 
as a primary fuel and gasoline as an option. So when Prohibition came along, they shut down, they controlled the alcohol market, which basically shut down all of the alcohol going in as fuel. And when Prohibition was over, the reasons giving for repealing the legislation was that people were tired of crime and people were tired of, um, you know, of, of having to go somewhere else to buy alcohol. But it, they admitted it had nothing to do with our drinking. It had everything to do with, with a bigger picture. Let me go back to the Titanic for a moment. Again, I'm, I'm jumping around, but I have That's to right. because I have so many notes. I'm thinking, if it was not an iceberg, what could it possibly be? And then I think the torpedo, the self-propelled torpedo, that is, was invented, I believe, in 1866. And then we have the, the Maine, we have the Lusitania. Could they have used a torpedo or several torpedoes against the Titanic, and that's why it felt it sank so fast. Well, absolutely they could have, and, and uh, that's something I point out, that when they started these hearings, they should have asked that, that very question. They didn't, you know, come on, you, you really want us to believe this thing hit an iceberg? It's much more likely that it got hit by a torpedo. It was a false flag. You know, somebody's trying to create a war. We've had these things happen before. This is not so unusual. That, that'd be a much more likely thing to have sunk that ship than uh, it having a collision with a with an iceberg. And then, so uh, that's a great question. Yeah, because I'm thinking, what else could they have used in order to sink it so quickly? And I believe some of the survivors never heard an explosion, did they, or, or a crash, did they? Well, <clears throat> a lot of those survivors. Um, of course, they're not here, and anything I say about them is people are going to get uh, upset with me. But a lot, a lot of those survivors, their stories are subject to question because somebody's got to explain this debris field. And until they explain that debris field, then I, I, I don't want to hear any more about this Titanic sinking slowly at the bow and you know, so that the third class below didn't even know it was sinking. And that's because the collision was so slight, they didn't even feel it. But yet, it somehow dented in five compartments, dented in half-inch steel, and nobody heard it, nobody felt a blow, you know. So that's uh, part of the reason why the, the original story is so hard to swallow. I might add that that's why in 1985, when I heard the ship was in two pieces, now I had to believe that first the ship uh, got 300 feet of damage hitting the iceberg, but now it also had to break itself in half while it sank. So they, they added on a whole nether story on top of that story. You know, first it sank from hitting an iceberg, doing damage 300 feet along the starboard bow. It caused it to sink in 160 minutes. Okay, that's really a tough story. But then when they say, oh, and by the way, well, it's saying it broke itself completely in half. And now it broke itself into five major pieces because now they've mapped the whole thing out. Five major pieces. And the other pieces are, are scattered all over the place. So it's three, three miles wide and five miles long. Could they have used explosives to, you know, demolish it? They had to. Now that... The, the pieces that are out of the very bottom of the bilge, which were right below the, the two engines, which weighed 2,000 
tons each. There was a, underneath these engines, there was a pedestal made of iron that was about two inches thick for those engines to sit on. And then that was on top of a lattice work across members uh, called a, I uh, can't, uh, can't think of the, what they call that. And then underneath that was the first one inch layer of steel. And then underneath that layer, there was about nine additional beams running longitudinally just under the engines because the engines were there. Then you have the frames dropping down five feet. Then you have the one inch uh, layer of steel on the very bottom. Now, right in the center of the engine, if you draw a line straight down, that's where the boat, where the hull is cut across. And I say cut because there's no other way steel could separate that way. If you pull steel apart to get it to separate, it's not going to separate in a straight line. And in fact, <laughs> it's going to stretch and basically not separate. I mean, to get steel to separate by pulling it apart is virtually impossible. I want you to know that. It keeps yielding and yielding, and then it work hardens, and it gets even harder to stretch. And so unless you keep pulling the load harder and harder, it just doesn't come apart. It might buckle. It'll bend. But um, so you've got these two pieces out of the very bottom of the hull that had to have been cut through the top layer and the bottom layer because the cut lines are all lined up, and there's six separate cut lines because there's two separate pieces. So there's a cut line on each side. And then since you have two layers, you have to have a top cut line and a bottom cut line. And the only way I could visualize, and I, I've talked to other people in steel is they used a linear shaped charge. And today they have them. It looks kind of like a big cord and you lay that along the steel. And when that thing goes off, it's like, uh, like thermite and magnesium, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. It's burning at such a high temperature, it just cuts right through the steel, cuts right through it. And that's what looks like took the Titanic down. That's what I would would guess. I because keep making, there's, no, go ahead, finish your thought. Well, there, there's just no way you could cut steel like that. You can't do it by buckling and you can't do it by stretching it. You can't do it by, by putting that, that hole through some kind of forces. It had to be, was had to be taken out either mechanically or by explosives. I keep making comparisons between 9-11 and the Titanic and at the Pentagon, for example. Right. Contrary to yeah. what the mainstream propaganda machine tells us, there wasn't a plane that crashed. A plane doesn't create a two-car garage hole. Therefore, no victims at the site. But you're saying that a, a new report has come out stating that no skeletons have been found at the wreck of the Titanic, and that would be 1,000. 162 persons. If that's the case, right. then what happened to the people? Just like I wonder what happened to the people who boarded the planes on 9-11. Yeah, uh, that's a question that needs to be answered. That's, that's exactly why this needs to be talked about. This, this whole case, we don't have closure on this because we have 1,162 people who are completely unaccounted for, and 56 of those are children. Now, anytime you've got missing children, that's a red flag. Those, those children could have been, oh, you know. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the child trafficking. Oh, of course. Uh, and slavery, world, too. Other. And this has been going on for as long as the Titanic has been around and before that. 
th these people could have uh, simply been moved to a foreign country and sold as slaves. They didn't have to drown. They didn't have to die. And it would have been a lot easier to just simply say, hey, get on board the ship. We're going to take it apart and then just take them somewhere else. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, these people find profitability. You know, this could have been another profitable venture or venue for their per perpetrators. Well, that's that's a good point. They never pass up an opportunity to make a little extra money off of a job. So this would be a way to, to make a little extra money <clears throat> to uh, sell those people off as slaves or, or do whatever they they did with them. But the, the there, there wasn't really a new report that came out about, oh, there's no bones. That's my thing. I, I went over all of the um, dive reports, all of the excavations that they've done, and there's they're so extensive, and that's why I listen. They should have found bones by now if there's any bones down there. They've been vacuuming. They've been going into every single locker and, and every place they can to find whatever. They have brought up hundreds and hundreds of thousands of artifacts. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, you'd, you'd be amazed. You'd, you'd be amazed if you read the summary of all the dives and expeditions that have gone down there, all the things that they brought up. Now, here's something else. Many so, famous people who purchased tickets uh, for the journey, but they did not actually sail. And they included Hershey's chocolate founder, Milton Hershey, uh, Guglielmo Marconi, the inventor of the of the telegraph and, and radio, J.P. Morgan, the American banking and steel okay. magnate, Alfred G. Vanderbilt. J.P. Morgan. I one of the richest men in America. So all these people had purchased tickets but didn't go. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? Well, again, you know, that's kind of like the 911 thing where a lot of people were tipped off. That Don't that show up. Was coming yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. That's such a red flag. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just one of so many <clears throat> that's just kind of added on there. So is the iceberg for the Titanic and the spark for the Hindenburg the equivalent of the planes that allegedly brought the towers down with kerosene on 9-11? Precisely. Precisely. Yeah, the Hindenburg, I, I got a lucky break. Uh, there's an author out there named James Perloff, and he'd done some research on the on the Hindenburg, and he'd come up with this guy named De Beers, who actually uh, took credit for shooting down the Hindenburg with an incendiary shell from a handheld rifle. It took one shell, and they were just simply hiding behind the bushes when it came in. They fired it into the rear of the, of the structure, and it set it afire. Which, you know, I mean, if you fire an incendiary shell into just about any aircraft, it's going to come down. So it's, it doesn't mean that that's, uh, the Hindenburg is unsafe. Everything's unsafe if you have people trying to shoot you down. Of course. Of course. Now, I've so heard they, this story before. You, you even mentioned it before. The helium and the the uh, hydrogen, you know, what I've been told, Harold Eich, FDR Secretary of the Interior, banned the sale of helium to Germany in 1934. And this forced the Germans to use flammable hydrogen to operate their famous airships. The Hindenburg airship disaster of 1937 was due in large part to Harold Eich's vindictive helium sanctions against Germany. Now, is this story true or not? 
Well, yes, it's, I think it's true, but I, I, it's also kind of a buildup. And by the way, there was a big buildup to the Titanic disaster, but this was the part of setting the stage, you know, that here's these Germans, they're uh, kind of getting a little bit aggressive, so we had to tell them, no, you can't have any of our helium. So they just went ahead, and they're just going to use hydrogen anyway. Um, boy, those those stupid Germans, you know, they'll probably regret doing that. So it's it's a way to set the stage to prime the people for a disaster. Just just like again, the, the parallels with nine eleven, you know, this the lack security. One of these days, we're going to have Osama bin Laden bring down towers with planes used as missiles. They're programming the population to believe that story. They even had a program. I don't know if you remember the X Files, but they had a, a spinoff of the X Files. I forgot. Gosh, what's the name of? Of uh, those three guys, anyway, the pilot program of that per- that uh, series showed a plane being used as a missile towards. It was May of two thousand one, you know, hitting the uh, twin towers or planning to hit the twin towers in order to propel us to go to war. So all the time they have these pre-programmed TV series to just prepare the people. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm it's good to, to know that you're up on that because that's that's part of their mode of operandi for sure. And the Titanic, they uh, they set that up with five different events before it actually happened. The Lone Gunman, that was the name of the, the spinoff, by the way. OK, now the airship, the, the, the Hindenburg made 10 arrivals to the same airfield in New Jersey the year before and 34 transatlantic crossings without any incident. Usually yeah, there were a couple yeah. of photographers usually there covering the arrival, but this time there were 22 professional news photographers on hand to film her arrival. So what would 22. this- 22. So why would this typical New Jersey airship landing call for 22 separate still and newsreel photographers if it was just another arrival? <laughs> well- not only that, they didn't get the pictures of the uh, the part that we needed. So uh, what I just you mean the, the, the explosion, my... the, the what led to they, the explosion? Well, they had they had twenty two professional photographers. Five of them had movie cameras, but they still didn't give us any pictures of when the fire began. What they, if you look at all of the footage, it's all about five seconds into the inferno. Yeah, right. It's all, and so. And then they said it exploded. They used those words in most of the newspapers, which it never did. It simply burned. Now that's that's a big um, that's a big difference exploding and burning because the fact that it burned that that heat just went straight up, and most of the people on the Hindenburg survived. When you have a modern airliner crash, almost nobody ever survives. Right. So. Um, this shouldn't have been used as a reason to cancel airships worldwide. So why were those 22 photographers there? They were there to document uh, a disaster and make it look like a worse disaster than it was because then they played the newsreels for decades after this in our theaters. I remember I was still seeing it in the 50s when I went to the movies. I was still uh, during the, the breaks between the, the feature films, I was still watching these clips about the Hindenburg burning. And, 
course, they always like to show somebody walking out of the flames, engulfed in flames, you know, just like a Hollywood towering inferno. Movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. But I remember uh, watching that movie in 1975 when it came out. I was a little kid and I was so, wow. It was a, I was, it was horror for me to see all those people being burned. So all my life, I believed that story. Just like all my life, I believed the story of the Titanic, even though if you asked a new generate the new generation that watched the Titanic movie from 1997, many of them say, what? That was a real event. Have you, have you, have you heard that? I haven't heard that one. I haven't heard that one. Now. At the time, this here's another factoid that I'd like to explore with you. At the time, there was no live broadcast. So how did the news commentator, Herbert Morrison, say the famous words, quote-unquote, it, it burst into flames, and then he broke down with emotion as he went on to describe the, the Hindenburg burning and people running for safety. This reminds me, Ken, of that reporter 9-11 who was obviously reading from a script, obviously reading it prematurely, stating that Tower 7 has collapsed when it was still visible on the TV screen shortly after it collapsed. I was, saw that. I was saw was that. it the same with this Herbert Morrison? Could have been. Could have been. I, I don't honestly know that Herb, Herb Morrison, if he was uh, on the good side or the bad side on that day, I don't know. But I do know that what he he did do was make a recording that was a recording. It was never a live broadcast. And so they spliced this in with a footage and they turned it into a live broadcast. Um, and that's what I have a problem with. Because exactly. You, you, you can't time sequence it. You, you, you don't really know what's going on. It's an orchestrated. It's uh, it's like what they did with TWA flight 800. They, the CIA came out with a movie that, showed the nose blowing off and the plane going straight up. You know, just ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. Look, I, I, uh, when I moved to Asia in 1996, July uh, 18th, the day before, it was 1996, not 98, that the Flight 800 explosion happened midair. What do you think happened? Oh, well, that was testified by a person, um, I forget his name, but he was a Vietnam pilot. He'd flown, I don't know, 100 missions. He knew ordnance. He was in a helicopter right over TWA Flight 800 when it got hit by a missile. He went to the FBI the next day and told them, I was there. This came up. It hit, and they wrote down his name on, a, on like a business card and said, we'll get back to you. And, of course, never did. The story I was told it was that there was a Navy ship close by, and by mistake, a missile was launched. It shut down Flight 800, but Clinton didn't want anybody to think it was— well, first of all, they couldn't admit that it was the Navy, number one. Number two, they didn't want it to be looked upon as terrorism. We had the Olympics in, in Atlanta at the time, so they had to say, oh, it was an, you know, an explosion. Right, right. Right, they just can't give us the truth, and they didn't. They didn't give us anything near the truth. And there were there were some uh, Egyptians that were on board that flight, and there was also a lot of retired TWA people. Who, you know, there was some thought that maybe that their retirements had, they'd been killed, so they didn't have to pay off their retirements. I don't know. There was a couple of side stories with that one. 
How do you compare the Titanic fuel system to our most advanced cruise liner of today? Superior. Definitely superior. The Titanic could run off of virtually anything that would burn. And so it had absolutely no dependence on an oil company. Um, today, you've got all of these ships running with these super engineered engines that need a very specific fuel. There's only one place they can get it. And everybody knows that the oil industry is a monopoly. Okay. It's a monopoly because <laughs> look at, look at the world. We're all running the same kind of engines, the same kind of cars. They're all made out of iron. They all rust. They all use tires that are made out of petroleum. They'll all wear out. You know, it just goes on and on. They all use oil filters that have to be changed. They all have batteries that, that don't last. And it's, it's just a gigantic way of making a lot of money off of humans basic need to move about not to mention planned obsolescence you you know we have to take our one and only break here but i remember well i wasn't born when the electric car the uh, cable car came along but i believe it was the tire industry that lobbied to get rid of the cable car because it was a threat to their industry just like the horse industry lobby to get rid of the Model T car because they said that's too that's going to be too dangerous and well the rest is history but when we come back I want you to answer this question who are they who determine for us what types of mechanisms we get to choose from and how can people buy the book I'm not sure if it's for sale yet is it uh, Mel <clears throat> it's not for sale and I don't want to sell it Honestly, I don't want to try and make money off of the story of the Titanic and the Hindenburg, two tragedies. I just really would like the truth to come out so that people can stop worrying about traveling over the ocean. We're totally safe there. Those people in Ireland who built that ship, they can know that they, they built a fantastic ship, one of the best ships ever built. Uh, in the meantime, if I can just get people interested in this that's that's my goal so i don't have it for sale I, it's at the website you can go there you can read it off the website you can download it and uh, you can you can see some of the drawings and and i've got some links there to some youtubes that you can look at and you can have a lot of fun it's a very interesting uh book it's i think it's a must read i For anybody who's really wanting to go out into the world and have a, an honest uh, appraisal of what you face, I, th I think it's a very beneficial book to read. I agree with you, and the link Thanks. to your website is right on our website. So anybody, just go to our website and you'll link directly there. I highly recommend that you read this book, and I didn't expect that you were going to offer it for free. So that's even a great bonus for our, our readers to, to, to have more of the real what could be possibly real history which makes more sense than the quote-unquote official stories but much more folks when we come back i i have over 27 pages of notes here i'm only on the sixth page so i don't know that i'll be able to cover it all but i'll try next time if not we're going to have to have kenneth price back on the show this is mel fabregas and you're listening to veritas see you in the member section Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com.
you don't want to miss the rest. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can find great products like pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and other great supplements. Thank you.